Welcome to Abandoned Sector, a storytelling podcast crafted by Explorabilia. Today's episode is the Pantheon of Energy, Mythology and Symbolism in Chernobyl. Borrowed time and borrowed world and borrowed eyes with which to sorrow it. Cormac McCarthy, The Road There were no other cars but ours on the long abandoned motorway to Pripyat. The last living souls we've seen were the last chance saloon keepers and armed guards at the exclusion zone border about 15 miles ago. The pure white snow blanketing the landscape is dotted with triangular red on yellow radiation hazard signs along with occasional animal trucks. The flat, marshy terrain is oozing with mist, drifting above the fallow fields and over the red forest in the near distance. It is named so after its ancient pines were killed by intense radiation from the burning reactor, turning from lush green into an eternal autumn's ginger brown. We are making a short stop by an abandoned farm. The roof of the dacha, the main cottage, has partially collapsed. Inside, the floorboards are rotting away and pale blue paint is flaking off its walls. Beyond it, a pair of wild dogs are savaging the carcass of a dead deer. One of them is staring right at me while gnawing at a bloody femur. In the distance, I can just make the outline of Pripyat's high-rises towering above the tree line. It is a post-apocalyptic landscape I previously only encountered in literature or video games. But here I am, standing right in the middle of an entire subculture's ground zero. This is where science fiction meets reality, and vision becomes a crumbling yet tangible truth. A lot has been written about the apparition of Pripyat. It was once a thriving Soviet town inhabited by workers and scientists working at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Then it was abandoned in the aftermath of the well-documented 1986 disaster that polluted the region with deadly radiation. Today, it is another sobering addition to Ukraine's growing list of dark national monuments, and it's been reclaimed by nature, along with an ever-increasing number of curious visitors, some of which are sadly adding to the decay and destruction the city has suffered since its evacuation. Suddenly, the motorway merges into Lenina Prospect, a magnificent tree-lined boulevard with weathered high-rise apartment blocks on either side. It is the main thoroughfare into the city, cutting the urban area down the middle and leading to the main square. It is, of course, named after the revolutionary leader of renown. Nearly every Soviet city had a street, square or monument dedicated to Lenin. But today, 
Soviet lexicology is rapidly giving way to more modern conventions. Specifically in the Ukraine, socialist lore is fast becoming extinct. Following the Euromaidan protests of 2013 and subsequent legislation that had all communist symbols outlawed, Ukraine had had tens of thousands of streets and villages renamed and hundreds of statues and other Soviet symbols removed or destroyed. But since the exclusion zone is now forever condemned to an otherworldly Soviet stasis, it is perfectly normal to be able to see the last known statues of Lenin in the Ukraine there, and Lenina Prospect is still appropriately leading us into the municipal heart of Pripyat. There's something fascinating about Soviet urban toponymy and its purposeful marking of urban landscapes with ideological symbolism. Light, Nikolai and Suditu, in 2001, wrote about how monumental architecture and urban planning was utilized by socialist regimes to express political power, resonate communist ideology, and reinforce its functions, values, and ideals. Pripyat was no exception. The purpose-built model Soviet city was embellished with ample socialist and energy-related symbolism and via its orderly and practical design, it is also a brilliant example of architectural functionalism. What was achieved here was a transmutation of an entire city into a living symbol of high socialism and its marvels, and faithfully also its failings, as experienced during the terrible events that took place here in the spring of 1986. Le Corbusier the Swiss-French architect, used to be mortified by how slovenly and untidy old cities often became over time. The visual discord, an often unnecessary and defunct accumulation of buildings and styles, thoroughly appalled him. But Pripyat, being the direct opposite of what he loathed, would most definitely please the Grand Master of Architecture. There was no accumulation of anarchic slums, or dilapidated buildings here, neither the disruptive variants of material and styles of a typical aging town. Instead, every building and district was predetermined and perfectly appointed to perform its inherent function. The result was order, an immaculately zoned modernist town with clearly discernible industrial, residential and recreation districts and a diverse range of public amenities, harmoniously connecting with one another through tree-lined streets and wide boulevards. Pripyat, by design, contained everything a city needed, and nothing a city didn't know. All these can be credited back to Maria Prochenko, the Chinese-born chief architect of Pripyat, who oversaw the city's planning and design. It has been reported how, despite the prevalence of standardized state regulations for city building, she is known to have utilized the meager resources available to infuse the city with her own aesthetic interventions. 
Surprisingly, Prochenko is one of the disaster's most unsung heroes. She was overseeing the expansion of Pripyat into a much larger city when the explosion happened. She reportedly organized and coordinated the evacuation of its citizens, map in hand, directing the emergency vehicle traffic in and out of the city. The first prominent building I see as I enter Pripyat is Energetik, the Palace of Culture. Socialist culture was diffused and reinforced in similar palaces of culture across the Soviet Union. The word Energetik is used playfully here, as it means moth energy worker and lively. It is a clear reference to the model Soviet city's immutable ties with the broader concepts of energy and action, as in atomic energy, since the very existence of Pripyat was connected to the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Creative energy, as the theater, library and cinema facilities at Energetik would suggest, or athletic energy, suggested by the boxing ring, swimming pool, basketball court, and other sports facilities contained. The ideal Soviet citizen was expected to be a well-trained and cultured individual, conscious of their destiny, and full of energy that can readily transform into ideologically motivated action, always prepared to deter counter-revolutionary reaction. Despite the omnipresence of communist propaganda in everyday life, the processes of indoctrination that characterized Soviet society weren't constantly overbearing. Pripyat seems to have been as vibrant and youthful a place to live and work as anywhere else in the world, in defiance to Western preconceptions about the standard of living in the Soviet Union. There is evidence that the young population, averaging 26 years of age, might have enjoyed an Epicurean lifestyle with ample sports, culture and entertainment facilities. They even enjoyed disco nights held at Energetic. One event was aptly named Edison II, presumably after Thomas Edison, the great American inventor and one of the fathers of electric power generation, so another definitive reference to energy but also perhaps evocative of Soviet perceptions of frivolity and hedonism in the USA, especially the disco-fueled, flamboyant New York scene of the 80s, whose glamour and glitter would have transcended the Iron Curtain at the time. There is irony in naming the discotheque of a Soviet town after an American inventor. It is the place where one can let their hair down, be a bit silly, naughty, over the top, and at least for a while be not serious at all. But there's also a sense of conformity with their overarching theme of energy in borrowing Edison's name. Such alternative events would most certainly require the approval of the powers that be, and the fact that the Edison II disco was contained within the Palace of Culture 
is a great example of how the boundaries of external cultural influence might have been carefully managed by the state apparatus in early 80s Soviet Union. After all, it was a country already at the threshold of astonishing political and social transformation. Behind the Palace of Culture, one crosses the city's iconic amusement park to reach Sportivna Street, named after, well, sports. This is where the Avanhard Central Stadium was located, home of the proud FC Stroitel Pripyat, the city's football club. It literally translates to FC Builder Pripyat, following the convention of many Soviet sports clubs named after an occupation or a piece of machinery. Pripyat's team competed in Kiev's local football league, facing teams named Dynamo, Refrigerator, Torpedo, Automobilist, Metallurg, or Radist. Many of these sport clubs would be established through professional associations, like those among comrades in the armed forces, or among co-workers in a mine or a factory. State-sponsored social organizations were widespread in the Soviet Union and used to promote socialist cohesion. Indeed, many of these organizations would also have a sports branch, and it is known that many of FC Pripyat's players had been workers at Chernobyl nuclear power plant, perhaps helping build the constantly expanding facilities. These organized social groups also served as a recruitment pool for Communist Party membership. Becoming a party member was very far from a simple sign-up. It was instead the result of a rather rigorous selection process and an achievement reserved for the very few who would demonstrate perfect ideological observance to party standards and sustain the close personal scrutiny required to make the mark. As you enter Pripyat through Lenina Prospect, you reach Kurchatova Vulitsi, the high street that crosses Pripyat from east to west. Igor Kurchatov was a prominent Soviet nuclear scientist and the father of the Soviet atomic bomb. He was indeed a proclaimed hero of socialist labor, the highest civilian distinction in the Soviet Union, and he received that immense honor three times. Connecting the nearly parallel Sportivna and Kurchatova streets down the middle, the Serjanta Lazarev Street is the inner city extension of Lenina Prospect, connecting Pripyat's north and south urban areas with the city center. This one is named after Sergeant Yegor Ivanovich Lazarev, a World War II Red Army officer leading an engineer's unit. Lazarev participated in the heroine crossing of the Dnieper in late September 1943, while exposing himself and his men to fierce enemy fire near Chernobyl. They defused hundreds of mines and created one of the earliest bridgeheads across the river Pripyat. Lazarev was killed in the area a fortnight after he pioneered the famous crossing, and was buried in the village of Yaniv, better known today as Pripyat's railway station. For his actions, Lazarev was awarded the status of Hero of the Soviet Union. Military heroism and unwavering bravery, or outstanding contributions to the advancement of science or industry, were idealized in the Soviet Union, 
and exceptional service was rewarded with the state's highest honors. People like Lazarev and Kurchatov were regarded as heroes, the living or deceased embodiment of socialist archetypes. The heroes and their families would enjoy immense fame in the Soviet world, along with a range of exclusive privileges. A pension, lower rent at higher quality accommodation, medical and entertainment benefits, free transportation and flight tickets, or a luxury car, to name a few. And for heroes that would achieve the status twice, there was the additional honor of having a bust with commemorative plaque erected in their hometown. And for those exalted individuals achieving hero status three times, there was the promise of a bronze bust with a columned pedestal in public display in Moscow. Indeed, Kurchatov became hero of Soviet labor three times, and being something of a Soviet celebrity, he's had his statue erected, and also a town, an institute, and even a moon crater and an asteroid named after him. The system encouraged the creation of heroes to inspire citizens and propagate Soviet ideals. Afterwards, the hero narratives are usually related in public spaces, where the state's expectations for achievement are displayed. Between the city center and the Lake Pier, I encounter Pripyat cinema, the Kino Theatre Prometei. Here I am greeted by yet another hero, albeit a mythical one. In Greek mythology, Prometheus is a titan who defies the gods of Olympus by stealing fire and giving it to mankind, therefore aiding their progression and advancement. Zeus, infuriated by this insolence, condemns Prometheus to an eternal circle of martyrdom. He is chained on a mountainside in Caucasus, and every day an eagle descends from the skies and eats his liver, which regenerates overnight, a grim circle of torment that continues in eternity. Combining the concept of energy with the ideal of personal sacrifice for the collective good, Prometheus becomes the mythical embodiment of key socialist ideals and another great role model for public display in an Atomgrad. The legend of Prometheus would have been a very popular allegory in the Soviet Union, a story of wealth redistribution, the justifiable appropriation of energy from the powers that be, with the ultimate purpose to help and improve the lives of common people. The ancient paradigm would have resonated positively with the communist worldview, a useful tale of ethics that might have been taught in state schools and suitably promoted in Soviet popular culture. With the mobilization of both actual and imaginary heroes, the boundary between myth and reality becomes blurred within the socialist ideological universe. Through collective achievements, personal sacrifice, and heroic distinction for the state, mortals become legends, often displayed alongside other ideological totems and mythical personas to inspire with their transcendence to another epic dimension. In a model Soviet city, urban planning and socialist realist art is utilized as the mediums to convey these values.
Street names and buildings bear names that impress the population and reinforce the socialist narrative. The urban environment, operative and expressive, communicates communist grandeur and majesty. And so sometimes cities become legendary avatars, the sum of their streets and buildings, their monuments and barricades, and their heroic residents, sometimes real and sometimes imaginary. We have several such hero cities emerging in the Soviet Union in the aftermath of World War II, granted awards, medals and monuments for their collective bravery and contribution to the state mythos. I saw another potential example of how fantastical art is utilized to mix legend and reality. I found myself at the top-secret Duga-1 facility, the immense military radar about 12 miles south from Pripyat. Built in 1976 as a top-secret early warning radar, the system affectionately known as the Russian Woodpecker would have been the very latest in Soviet anti-ballistic missile defense technology. And somewhere inside the immense facility, there is a strange mural in what might have once been a refectory. It resembles a space elevator. The idea of a space elevator, a cable car connecting Earth with space, was very much in vogue in the late 70s. In 1975, members of the global scientific community were in awe of U.S. space scientist Jerome Pearson's publications about the feasibility of such a device. And in 1979, the famous British sci-fi novelist Arthur C. Clarke publishes Fountains of Paradise, a best-selling fictional account about the construction of a space elevator. Perhaps this publicity could have been enough to influence the creation of the imaginative mural I saw? But long before Pearson and Clarke popularized space elevators, there was Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, the reclusive Russian scientist whose theories informed much of modern rocketry and space engineering. As a young, inquisitive man of science, Tchulkovsky was impressed by the space fiction writings of Jules Verne, as well as the construction of the Eiffel Tower in 1987. Through his study of the properties of gas fuels, he understood that the cost of propulsion for a spacefaring vessel would be huge. This prompted him to develop an early theory of a space elevator circa 1895. He imagined a spacefaring vessel, which is called a celestial castle, tethered on Eiffel Tower by cable, and using electrical motors, inertia and gravity to provide an inexpensive way to travel from Earth to space. Exciting as this sounds, the truth about what the mural might represent could be much simpler. In 1971, the Soviet Union launched history's first successful space station. Codenamed Salut, the space program aimed to the establishment of a long-duration orbital space station for scientific observation. Three cosmonauts, Dobrolovsky, Volkov and Pachayev, lost their life due to a malfunction returning from one of the first Salute docking missions in 1971. They were made heroes of the Soviet Union, 
and their grand state funeral was much publicized in media at the time. But in reality, the salute program was a front for the parallel development of the so-called Almaz military space station, a veritable celestial castle armed with a 23mm cannon, which was test-fired in space in 1975, and to this day, the only known armed space station ever flown. The salute was also capable of advanced photographic and radar imagery. Between 1971 and 1981, the Soviet Union launched several space missions as part of the program. So all this spacefaring activity would be peaking around the time the Duga-1 radar was built, another top-secret installation aimed to spy and defend against the US. So could this mural with a bit of artistic license have represented an imaginary space elevator? Or was it about the amazing feats and unquestionable Soviet primacy in orbital space stations at the time? Whatever the answer is, the mural is another great example of how socialist art was used contextually to exalt and popularize Soviet scientific achievements. Next to uh, Cinema Prometei, across the appropriately named Nabereshna Street, it's the Wharf Street, one can find the city's lake port. In the summer, one might have enjoyed sailing on board a pleasure boat from here. The cafe restaurant sits atop the riverbank, overlooking the pier, and there was an open platform and a 360-degree viewing tower allowing guests to take in the natural beauty of the scenery beyond, as well as observe the city of Pripyat. The beautifully stained glass walls would illuminate the interior with colors as rays shine through, and they still do today. The Riverside Cafe is a beautiful reminder of what would have once been one of the premier laser spots of Pripyat. But what is that strange monument just outside the lakeside cafe? Some say it is Soviet abstract art, some others say it resembles an ice cream cone. To me it can only represent one thing. It is Atet, the solar bards of Ra, the Egyptian sun god. According to legends, Ra sailed on Atet in an eternal circle illuminating the skies with bright sunshine in daytime, and then entering the underworld at night, fighting off beasts and monsters, dying and being resurrected the next morning to continue his endless journey. The conceptual representation of a boat carrying what seems to be an energy-radiating solar sphere works on many levels in the case of Pripyat. The monument is outside the lakeside cafe, across Kinotheatre Prometei, and arguably dedicated to a mythological deity who is fighting and sacrificing itself each day to deliver energy and warmth to mankind. Is that part of an intentional recurrence of energy-related heroic themes? But why specifically an Egyptian deity above the plethora of other mythologies of energy? 
Well, there may be a practical and also distinctively political explanation for that. In 1952, Gamal Abdel Nasser overthrows the monarchy, takes control of Egypt, and nationalizes the Suez Canal. These actions start a major political crisis that culminates in the Western sanctions and military confrontation known as the Suez Crisis. Despite the brinkmanship of his actions, Nasser is determined and single-minded about his vision of the country's future and orchestrates a major political overture toward the Soviet Union. Very soon, Soviet military and financial aid starts pouring into Egypt, culminating in the USSR financing and aiding the construction of the Aswan High Dam, a major hydroelectric project in the Nile between 1960 and 1976. The design of the dam came from the Hydro Project Institute, a Soviet firm with great expertise in the design of dams, sluices, canals, and a variety of water and energy-related projects, who built over 250 hydroelectric dams in the USSR since the 30s. It isn't surprising that such a major technical company with expertise in major energy projects would also be involved in atomic energy. Indeed, it is recorded that the Hydroproject Institute was a key participant in the construction of Chernobyl nuclear power plants between 1972 and 1977. Could it be that some of their engineers might have returned from Aswan with legends of Sun Ra and solar divinity? At the least, this major Soviet political and technical achievement in Egypt would have played in contemporary news long enough to inspire an Egyptian-themed monument, however abstract it might be, in the city of Pripyat. But the Hydroproject Institute appears to have brought more than their expertise from the lands of Egypt. In a modern version of the Curse of the Pharaohs, they appear to have been entrusted with Chernobyl nuclear power plant's hydroelectric design, and in particular the emergency power supply system that allowed the water pumps of the nuclear power plant to continue operating using the inertia of the reactor's turbine in case of a power failure. If that doesn't ring a bell, this is exactly the system that was being tested in Chernobyl on the fateful night of the 24th of April 1986. Alas, in most of the world's mythologies, the old gods seldom remain benevolent for long. The inquisitive and defiant human nature often challenges divine temperance, bringing about their wrath. And as the story went, after the vengeful Zeus punishes Prometheus for his betrayal, he directs his fury to mankind by sending Pandora, the first woman to live among mortals. Beautiful but faithful, she is being used by the gods to compensate for the cosmic imbalance caused by Prometheus's gift for fire. Gifted with innate curiosity, Pandora becomes the trigger for Zeus's elaborate revenge. She discovers a mysterious jar unattended and compellingly opens it. 
But Zeus has enclosed all evils that exist in the world in this jar. Sickness, misery and death escape like a swarm of grotesque flying insects as soon as he opens the lid. Therefore, humankind is forever tarnished by these evils, and Zeus's revenge appears complete. This is, of course, one final parallel between the catastrophic scale of the Chernobyl disaster and the opening of Pandora's box. And in the case of Pripyat, a city filled with symbolism and meaning by design, the allegory of biblical destruction makes sense in an almost metaphysical scale. It is a unique place that represents the high watermark of socialist expression in the urban landscape, but also reflects the deficiencies, shortcomings and subsequent demise of an entire ideology. In 2006, 20 years after the disaster, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the USSR, wrote about how, even more than his launch of Perestroika, Chernobyl was perhaps the real cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union five years later. You can read the original blog post on my website www.explorabilia.co.uk. Thank you.